welcome to episode 54 of Literary Disco, The Free. Today begins with a regular old school bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I each bring a book down from our shelves to discuss. And then we'll dive headlong into a world of nurses, runaways, wounded veterans, and paint store clerks with Willie Vlotten's latest novel, The Free. I am actor and filmmaker, writer strong, with me in digital spirit as always, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hello. I don't, I don't think we've ever been described as being in digital spirit. That sounds like one of the bands that played Coachella, actually, <laughs> this weekend, or two weekends ago. I think it sounds depressing. Is, is my spirit now digital? Because I want out. Oh my god, that's just like this Johnny Depp movie that I just saw an ad for. It looks amazing. So, it's the premise bomb. is... It's supposed to be horrible. He dies. Oh, this is a real movie? And then his mind is transported. Oh, transcendence. It came, and, it came and went. It came and died. Yeah. There have been a lot uh, of movies like that. Well, Johnny Depp wasn't wearing white makeup and walking around making a crazy face. So, so was there at some point where Johnny Depp was a geisha? <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, every Tim Burton movie. Are you kidding me? He's always just walking around with like white makeup on his face, going Ooh. And then every Tim Burton movie, all the the all the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. What are you I... talking about? Like he hasn't been a normal dude since Donnie oh, Brasco. Oh man, I love Donnie Brasco. Which is great, and that's the last normal dude Johnny Depp's played. Maybe Blow. Blow, he was kind of normal. Oh, I vaguely remember Blow. But then he did Transcendence, and, and it didn't work out for him, so he's probably just going to go back to kids. He movies. was great in Reality oh. Bites. I loved him in Reality Bites. Now you're just making stuff up that now. Was, that was Ben Stiller I'm thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ethan let's... Okay, uh, hey, what are Hawk. we doing? We're doing a bookshelf revisit, so I'm going to go first. Um... And today I'm going to talk about poetry, oh. poetry in general, and then uh, one poem in, in particular. So here's what happened in my book club that I cheat on you guys with. Um, you know, the direction of the book club has just been the direction I think that most book clubs go, which is that it becomes dinner club where mm-hmm. you drink a lot right. and maybe talk about a book for 30 seconds. And it's been frustrating for me because, of course, I actually really love talking about books and diving into it. But whatever, you know, it's what, the way the way that book clubs go. So I was supposed to host, which meant I had to pick the book and cook the meal and everything, and I decided to pick a poetry book. I was just like, screw it. We never talk about the book anyway. I'm going to pick something that's short and easy to read. So I picked a book of Tony Hoagland's. Tony Hoagland, who I've talked about before a bunch on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I read his poem, Dickhead, I think, or one of his poems I read the, about language uh, on the show. So I picked um, the, uh, the collection called What Narcissism Means to Me which is a great title and a great collection. Um, but it was the one, the collection of his that I knew the least. His most famous and probably his best is his first uh, Donkey Gospel. So I put this book out there and um, didn't really expect much or didn't really know. I thought it was just going to be one of those gatherings where everyone would be like, yeah, the book was weird. I didn't get this poem. And then we'd eat and forget about it. <laughs> but what ended up happening is they, we sat down and they, um, a lot of people in the club didn't like the book and didn't like the poems. And we started talking about why and what, and then I um, said, well, let's, can we all talk about, like, one that we did like, and I picked one that I liked, and I read it aloud, and then everybody was like, oh, my God, it's so good to hear them out loud, so we went Mm -hmm. around the table, and we ended up reading about ten of the poems from this book out loud, everybody taking turns reading, like, their favorite, and by the end of this experience, everybody was like, wow, I really like this, these poems, I really Mm -hmm. like this book, and I really like this poet, and the whole tone of the night changed and i i i just realized um it made me appreciate something that i guess i kind of take for granted because i went to an mfa program i go to readings or i've been to readings so the concept of like reading poetry aloud isn't that strange to me but i think it's actually still kind of strange to people so they don't think about it i mean i guess poetry in general is still kind of strange to most people and um and then to to take the step to read it aloud to somebody um i had i had a very similar experience recently I was reading um, this great new poet um, uh, that the lead singer of Typhoon suggested to me, the band Typhoon, which I talked about on the show too. Um, he suggested um, this poet who's a friend of his named Zachary Schomburg, who's wonderful. <laughs> but I got his collection of poetry and I started reading it to myself and I was kind of not into it. And then my wife walked into the room. This was like around Thanksgiving and we were at my parents' house, you know, just winding down after a big holiday meal. And, um, and I'm, I started reading them aloud to my wife and we both were dying with laughter 
And I hadn't found any of these poems funny until I started reading them aloud. So I just wanted to sort of make my revisit about reading poetry aloud and how important it is sometimes to say it aloud, even if you're not with somebody else, but to think of the poem as a voice in your head. Um, and so to honor that, I wanted to read a poem by the great Ed Ochester, who was a mm -hmm. professor in our MFA program at Bennington. He was a great poet, an older poet, wonderful. He's been around forever. And he's also, I thought, appropriate for today because he's one of the few poets who comes from like real working class and mm -hmm. writes about class a lot, writes about poverty in America a lot. And um, I just think that that connects to the Willie Blotton book that we're going to discuss later. Um, so he has a poem called At the Poetry Reading that I'd like to read. <laughs> At the Poetry Reading. In the library, I am very decorous and read what I think are my quietest poems and my least nasty, except for the two about Pocahontas being a sexually active 12-year-old and the one about <laughs> Jesus as a parasitic insect. And all in all, I am a good deal less shocking than a Quentin Tarantino movie or, for that matter, Men in Black. And a few younger students yawn as if to underline the fact but I see Anne, my student from college for the over 60, and what seems to be an elderly friend of hers, and afterward they come up to me holding hands. Anne is nervous and maybe blushing, though she says it's so good to hear my new poems, but her friend appears to be in a state of shock and mutters, it's another world, another world. And I almost lie, it's not my fault. I don't want to make you unhappy. I just write what I see. As they backpedal and say, goodbye, goodbye, nice to meet you, and totter off, to the real world, Ronald McDonald, The Phantom of the Opera, Christmas Clubs, Princess Diana, Oprah on a Diet, The Statue of the Virgin Mary Weeping mm. in the North Hills. Mm, great poem. That's good stuff. Uh, it's a great poem, and I just, you know, it kind of got to the point about how we're, we're disengaged from poetry. We don't, and poetry is a very active force, and, you know, its ability to, to speak to us on a level that movies can't, or can in some ways but poems can in other ways and i just think you know poetry needs to be mainstreamed a little bit again um because it's been a long time I and mean, basically the beats and beatnik poetry were the last like sort of moment in american history when people were actually reading poems on a regular basis although i guess slam poetry brought brought it back but i can't well stand you know poetry, um so. my friend matthew zapruder who actually has a fantastic new book of poetry out right now called sun bear which i've been reading um a poem a day for since it came out and it's um alternately heartbreaking and funny and amazing and i'd pimp him more but just know that he's amazing he has a book coming out i think it's next year about basically i think why poetry matters in the 21st century, how we fit it in in literature, um, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. I think that, you know, we we joke a lot. Um, he worked for me on my faculty at UC Riverside um, about, you know, what are poems? They're skinny and on the left, you know? How do they, yeah. how do they you know, <laughs> how do they matter? And, you know, he's been one of those people that's really gotten me to read challenging, interesting poems and poets in the last couple of years. Because of, you know, obviously it's something that we've all talked about, you know, my sort of reticence towards poetry in general. Um, because writers like Ed Ochester, that's funny to me. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. if I heard that at a poetry reading, I'd really be engaged by it. The same way I'm engaged by the work that Matthew writes. And I think it might be something about, at least for me, and I'm curious about what you guys think about the bringing in of popular culture into that poem specifically that you read and mm -hmm. its relevance to us. So that when we're when we're talking about um, Robert Frost recently and we can't quite connect to him sitting on a horse looking into the woods because we don't sit on horses and we don't go into the woods but we sure as hell know about Oprah and Princess Die and all that other stuff and it's over importance in our culture. I, I wonder if there's if there's a, a close relationship between those two things now. Sure I mean I think so many things in our, our culture now are shortcuts to feelings or shortcuts to thoughts and you know any reference is that's exactly what it is is a shortcut but to use it in poetry like that is both using the shortcut and reflecting on it in this resonant way that he's doing so mm -hmm. you know Robert Frost I mean I would have to go back and look but I don't remember any you know shortcuts you know, like pop culture things from that time. No, remember, remember that the the big title poem from New Hampshire is that forty page poem that goes through like oh, just the yeah, political yeah, yeah. things that are going on right. and the headline stuff. So he was of as of his time as as any of us, 
you know, or any of these other poets are. Well, I think the closest parallel is like painting in general, you know, and you think about the variety of paintings that you can have, you know, and, and, and fine art in general, I guess. Like mm-hmm. you can have sculptures, you can have, I think poetry kind of fits in the same cultural category where it's like, it's not as relevant as movies or songs um, in terms of the mass culture, and yet people still look to them as pure, pure expressions in some ways. or They just occupy a different space and an intimidating space for most people. They intimidate us. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, pop culture sometimes can be the easiest way to draw people into it. But um, I don't know. My suggestion is to read it aloud and see what happens because it changes. Totally Obviously, agree. like, I think everyone's intimidated by poetry. And I think when you say it aloud and you watch somebody else listening and hearing you, it, like, it was amazing that not only did everyone at my book club want to hear the poems aloud, they all wanted to read. It was like, mm. oh, let me read this one because it was something about sharing the, the mental. Um, you know, trajectory that a poem takes and hearing it as, as a singular experience aloud that's being shared in time mm-hmm. is really helpful um, because otherwise it can just become a collection of words on a page. And, right. you know, there's no narrative usually. There's Sometimes there's a narrative of sorts, but it's mostly someone's thoughts in a certain order that they've structured. And not if you can, if you try and read like an entire collection in one sitting, it all just starts to jumble together. So taking like one poem at a time, reading it aloud, hearing it hit, hearing the breath, it's, mm-hmm. it's a different experience. Yeah. I totally agree, and I continue to be baffled, and I think this is something I may have said way back when we did story songs. My favorite episode ever because of Buckner's Bolero, which, if you guys don't know, it's baseball season, and you should listen to that song again. Well, anyway, I am just shocked that in the mental disconnect we have in our culture that poetry is, like, overwhelming and, you know, pretentious, and rap lyrics are i mean i pretty much understand the same percentage you know reading a poem and listening what what part of you're a fine young thing why don't you back that ass up don't you understand julia okay well you know 90s 90s is one thing but like there are some really complex and amazing lyrics in music that we accept because we don't because it's music. We're like, oh, it's this is how I'm supposed to experience it. It's this, you know, you're experiencing the rhythm, the cadence, and the lyrics. Um, so, yeah, I think bringing poetry back into the music zone will get us more into a place where we really can accept it for what it is. Well, you rather know what? than trying to make it into a novel. Um, speaking of Matthew Zapruder, Michael Zapruder, his brother, who is a singer-songwriter, did a whole album called uh, Pink Thunder. I think that's what it was called. And it was all songs that were poems that other people had written. Um, I'll have to look that up. That's cool. Yeah, it came out, um, I think it was maybe 2011. Um, I'll look it up there. And if uh, if I can figure it out, if there's some good songs that I can... Yeah, it came out in 2012. Um, we'll, we'll put a link up to one of the songs on the Facebook. Um, and Michael Zapruder's an interesting singer because, you know, he's... He comes from a poetry family, and he's a he's a fine lyricist himself. So it's this interesting combination of poetry and music together. But it does it's not like you're walking into a coffee shop and there's someone banging a drum and it's boom, boom. Your mother, boom, bum, fucked me. You know, it's not like slam poetry. It's actual music. <laughs> wow! Ouch! I'm gonna get some slam poet fans. Yeah, yeah. All right then, that's the I'll show. Go next. Um, okay, I'll go next. Um, I'm excited because I have read, this is for the first time in a long time since we've been doing the podcast, I read a really long book just for fun, and it took me a while, um, but I just read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt after incredible oh. societal pressure. I didn't want to pay $30 for a hardcover, mm-hmm. but eventually I was like, I, I want to be able to talk about this with everybody who is so excited about it. Um, you, you guys haven't read it, have you? No. No, I haven't read it. It is so goddamn good. <laughs> it is so good. And uh, so here's... Uh, I meant to back into it this way, but now I've already revealed what I read. But So I have this um, huge nerd fear, which is that um, I will read everything Charles Dickens ever wrote, and then there will be no more Dickens, and I will be sad. Because <laughs> the experience... I, I really came to love Charles Dickens as an adult, and the richness of his characters and just the, the way that you can sink into a narrative, which I is to me is not echoed by almost any other writer in history. Um, and The Goldfinch is like reading 
a Dickensian novel set now. It is amazing. Wow. So it moves from, um, and here's what makes it that way, is that it's very much based in place, and it's about a kid. I mean, it's so, so Dickensian, like purposely so. It's a, about a kid who experiences tremendous loss early on, and I don't want to give anything away because it's full of surprises. Um, and then he moves to various locations throughout America um, and then abroad. But each place is so rich with characters and experiences that it just, it it's like reading Oliver Twist or David Copperfield. You know, mm-hmm. he just moves into these zones where there's these insane characters. I mean, there's, um, and it's just so well written and so well described. So, like, there's sections where he's, like, dealing with this crazy, essentially mobsters in the Netherlands. And then there's other sections where he's with pill poppers in Vegas and then um, furniture restorers in New York. And it all hangs together just on his story, just like any great work of Dickens. So I was so excited as this was happening. And it's just a really good book. And what it's really about is art and art, um, like our connection to, to, paintings Hmm. and why they matter and it's so (laughs) the goldfinch is a real painting and um it's it takes this like it takes this character and this painting and puts them together in a way that i really don't want to give away because i experienced it very freshly and then takes the narrative through a place where like he's basically chasing a painting around around the world so it's really really a good book and I recommend it. And I'm always so happy when it's worth the hype. And it won the Pulitzer this year. I try to always read the, the Pulitzer Prize books. Um, it's it's really long, though. I mean, it's like 800 pages, right? Yeah, it's 800 pages. Oh, but it's a very pleasurable 800 pages. It's like, you know, it, rarely this will happen to me, but I was getting up earlier than I would normally get up just to read 20 or 30 pages. It's not. It doesn't feel that long at all. Hmm. I'm trying to think of another book that it was a cloud atlas almost, although it's oh, way like less. It's not like that in terms of moving through time or anything, but it's like that in terms of like the sheer pleasure of, you know, wanting to be in it. Mm-hmm. It's just there's, a really good book. There's something interesting, I think, also about these giant books that are six or seven or 800 pages by writers that we know are pretty good writers. So, you know, no, mm-hmm. no one's under the assumption that Donna Tartt is a hack, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but... You know, I I wonder sometimes, and and maybe you can answer this, do we give writers who we already have great respect for more latitude in an 800-page novel than we would with someone we don't already know? Like, did you sit down and say, there's no way this is going to at least be horrible. I'm going to really get into this, even though it's so long. I mean, no, I don't think that, because I think Stephen King has written some really long books that aren't that good. Mm-hmm. So I'm always prepared for something to be not great. But for a writer that writes about character and and did you guys read the secret history? Yes. Yeah. Did, so it's Did um, you read it right? Yeah. No, what is the secret history? Secret history actually takes place at our esteemed alma mater at Bennington. Um there oh, are some girls. Right. I knew I'd there's heard of a, it. No, I've never read it. There's a there's a dead body. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Crossit Library. <laughs> it, it, it's a quite good book. I recommend yeah. it. Um, but I knew that her writing quality was both it's both literary but also just very um, engaging. Like it's it's all about plot, really, plot and character. So I, I had a feeling it would be good. I didn't realize that it would actually be about themes that I'm really excited about. So that was mm. an a- added bonus to me was the art aspect, and then a huge chunks of it take take place in the West Village where I've spent a lot of time. So, hmm. yeah, you guys would really like it. You guys, I think everyone would really like it. It's a very rare book that I think I would recommend to almost anyone. Oh, wow. Yeah. To counter your point, Todd, um, I loved um, Peter Mathiessen, who just died this month, actually. Um, he wrote a book called Snow Leopard, which is famous and wonderful. And, and then he got a lot of attention a few years ago for Shadow Country, mm-hmm. which was a like a trilogy book that was finally published all together is like one long and man, it was so well written. I couldn't care less after about 250 pages. I just gave up. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't. 
and you know it won a bunch of awards so i'm sure some people love but i i i, I as much as i loved him and i wanted to to like this book and i loved the writing it didn't have enough of a plot right. it didn't have enough of a you know consistent character or narrative tension or whatever it is that you need in order to rationalize having a book be that long like i really don't think you can do it um, you can't you can't screw around with plot. You know you need it. You need story. Sometimes I even yeah. feel that way though in nonfiction. You know, I, I read a uh, a biography of Norman Mailer that was eleven hundred pages long to write a book review of oh for a newspaper that then went out of business before they ran my review. But that's another story. Oh. And you know seven hundred and forty pages in, I'm like. He's going to die. Could we get to that point already where Norman Mailer is fucking dead so I can be done? <laughs> or can I just die? Can we just kill me so I don't have to I get it. Norman Mailer was an asshole, and he wrote some books that people liked and some books that people didn't like. And he fucked a lot of other people and had, you know, weird relationships with his family. Do we need 400 more fucking pages of him? Yeah. Die! I mean, I think we, we should do an episode on a biography because it's so rare that a biography is able to find a truly great story. Um, while being a traditional biography. Yeah, versus something like Unbreakable, which is, it's a traditional biography, but, you know, it's, I think, probably written more uh, cinematically, perhaps, than the Norman Mailer biography was of 1,100 pages. Of, and then he went to Chicago and freed a prisoner. Oh, God, that fucking book. Wait, Unbreakable? What's that? You know, the, the book by Laura Hildenbrand, is that her name, who wrote Seabiscuit? Oh, 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 yeah. It's been the yes. bestseller for the last two years or whatever. The guy who did everything. He survived World War II, won a gold medal, murdered Hitler, something like that. Wow. Yeah. He walked with Gandhi. Now I'm just making shit up. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if he walked with Gandhi. Yeah. I hope he did. Um, so my revisit, um, I was sort of inspired by Willie Vlotten. So Willie Vlotten, who we'll talk about in just a minute, in addition to being an author, is the uh, lead singer and songwriter of a band called Richmond Fontaine. So I was thinking about writers who are also musicians and um, and books that I've liked by them and books that I haven't liked by them. And there's a bunch. Um, the I think the first book that sort of made an impression on me written by a musician was Beautiful Losers by Leonard Cohen, which is um, not a very good book, is in my memory, sort of a lesser beat novel. Um, but then there's a, a book like Amplified, which was an anthology of short stories written entirely by singer-songwriters. So it includes um, like Maria McKee from Lone Justice, Rhett Miller from the old 97s, uh, Mary Gautier, Gautier, however you pronounce her name. Uh, so it's 15 or so short stories written by singer-songwriters. And I, I read this book um, when it came out. And wrote a review of it. I, I couldn't find the review. Um, but what I remember mostly about it was that um, they were great at having singular great lines. You know, one heartbreaking line of narrative, but the stories typically fell apart. Except for a graphic novel that was inside of this by a writer named Zach Sally, who apparently is also a graphic novelist in addition to being... Um, a singer-songwriter. He it was a former bassist in the band Low, um, and now he does a lot of comics. I think he did the comic uh, Sammy the Mouse is one that he did. But his graphic comic called Feed the Wife was really good and uh, and compelling. Maria McKee's short story I remember being uh, absolutely dreadful. But if you guys are interested, um, it, it's an entire anthology of short stories by um, singer-songwriters called. Amplified, and it's mostly alt-country and indie rock folks. Um, and then the I was thinking about two other recent books by singer-songwriters. Uh, Sean Madigan Hoyne has a memoir out um, from Soho Press, and uh, I just heard him read at AWP, and so I'm looking forward to that. And then my friend Rob Roberge's book, The Cost of Living. And Rob is a, a novelist and story writer, but is also the uh, guitarist in the seminal punk band The Urinals. And his book, The Cost of Living, is actually about a guy who is in a punk band, sort of a replacements-like, shambolic mess of a band who goes through his childhood and horrible fucked-up stuff has happened. Um, but it's, it, I think it's an example of a writer who is... Um, he's obviously a good musician, Rob, as he's been playing in, in big touring bands for many, many years. But the craft in his songs is completely different than the craft in his stories. And I'm, I'm curious to talk about that a little bit as it relates to, um, to Willie Vlotten, because I think that it'll be interesting to see the, the difference. 
but I think there's a lot of singer songwriters who who sort of jump over into the the prose world. Do, can you guys think of anybody that you know of? Patty Smith. Oh right, that was a biography. Or it was a memoir. Right. Yeah. Leonard Cohen had a poetry book mm-hmm. um, Jewel. that I read. Oh, Jewel did have a, Jewel did have a book <laughs> of poetry. Oh Jewel. Yeah, but that's all poetry. I mean, because I was going to say Bob Dylan is a, a really horrible poetry book too that I tried to read. It's called mm-hmm. like Tarantula or something. <laughs> horrible. I find it. It's a, it just doesn't. It's such a like songwriting is such a unique skill. I don't mm-hmm. know if it necessarily translates. Although you'd think there would be some great country songwriters who would be good storytellers because so much of country is right. like creating a narrative and um, you know. A lot of times there's a, a distinct character going through something, a breakup, a truck. <laughs> a break you know, going a through truck, a truck. Dog. That sort of thing. <laughs> Which would make a great, you know, yeah. Willie Vlotton's kind of novel song. kind of. Yeah. It would could be, be a great country be song, right? I think, you know, the thing that, that happens in Robert Berge's book is that, you know, the guy's life in punk rock, the main character's name is Bud. You know, he he's a drug addict and uh, he's a punk musician and those things are required character parts, but he could have written this novel. He, I mean, he's written lots of other books previously and they've never really had, you know, lead singers in bands as the main characters. But I think the thing that happens in the cost of living that's interesting is that he also is threading music through the book. So he's Rob as a novelist is paying homage to both sides. It's, it's a, a very clear, you know, fictional tale, but you know, there's a soundtrack that runs through it, too, which I think is an interesting thing for a writer to, to try and put in their book. Yeah, that's cool. Love that. Yeah, it is neat. So th- that's that's my revisit, Singers Who Write. And now we shall turn to Willie Vlotton's The Free. And he writes and sings for Richmond Font? Yeah, he's the lead singer. And Okay, that's, that's the weirdest band name I've yeah, ever heard in my is. life. I don't understand it at all, but... Uh... Maybe you can shed light on that when we return. Welcome back, everybody, from the fake break that we take in the middle of the show, where basically we just sit around and talk to each other. (laughs) What we did in our last fake break is uh, I recommended music to Julian Ryder, and then uh, I looked at the Wikipedia for Willie Vlotten, (laughs) who we're going to talk about right now. Yeah, and we uh, gossiped about personal projects that's really yeah, what we usually do during the big break yeah it's a it's a big part of it so willie vlotten for those of you who don't know is the author of four novels we're talking today about his latest book the free um which just came out from the fine folks at harper his previous books were the motel life which came out in 2006 north line which came out in 2008 and lean on pete which came out in 2010 and i think the motel life was made into a movie, if I remember correctly, um, and a little indie film with who's that little girl who um, Dakota Fanning, with, Amelia, yeah, who's like a space alien, yeah. How did you know that? Who's that little girl, Dakota Fanning? Because like I've heard of the movie, but I haven't seen oh. it. <laughs> I was Writer very has a catalog impressed. of all little girls. <laughs> There's only oh, one good. little girl in the world, <laughs> Dakota. <laughs> So, uh, Willie Vlotten is the author of all of those books. In addition to that, he is the singer and songwriter of a very cool indie band called Richmond Fontaine, um, which is sort of an alt-country with a punk rock edge, you might say. Um, they've been around, God, for about 20 years or so. They've been, they've been around forever, or not forever, but quite a long time. They put out uh, an album every couple years or so. Um, and they're really place-based albums. They have lots of songs about, you know, being stuck in Walla Walla or Winnemucca or any other small town on the Oregon, Washington, Nevada border areas. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think that the band itself is not extraordinarily well-known outside of perhaps people like myself who are into alt-country and sort of post-punk rock. But if you're interested in that sort of stuff, I, I recommend checking out uh, Richmond Fontaine. So The Free um, is a really unusual novel. Uh, I had not ever read any of his books before. I'd been told that I would love The Motel Life and Lean on Pete and bought them and never read them. So I thought this would be a good entrance into this world. I think it's it's a little bit like reading a, a country song, as actually mm-hmm. Ryder said during our break. What, uh, what were your guys' big thoughts thus far on The Free? Um, I really liked it. I, I'm... 
I'm a little torn about a few things, but um, in general, like, I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I make it a rule to never read any of the blurbs or anything. What the, so I had no idea what I was getting into. And um, of course, when I finished the book and I had all my references, oh, this is like a Raymond Carver and a John Steinbeck. And then, of course, that's what all the blurbs say. <laughs> uh, and he <laughs> yeah. is, he's very Carver-esque. Um, in, and I guess what that means is so understated um and like Mm -hmm. everything has equal weight so in a way it's almost um it's 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 almost harder to read a full novel that's written that's so evenly because you have to you Mm -hmm. have to find what's important in a sentence or what's important in a scene between characters because none of it is sort of underlined for you none of it is given more weight or strengthened and um i love that i think that is that is so rare for a writer to be able to do that because we always want to cheat and, you know, write, you know, big exclamation points or write a big scene or find the most dramatic point of tension. And instead um, he doesn't like, he finds a a really interesting way to, to keep you narratively engaged without um, hitting you really too hard with the narrative points. That said, I think he hits a little too hard with the thematic points. Um, yeah, yeah that, 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 that's a good point. We should tell a little bit about the yeah. plot. So the, the book opens up with a Iraq war veteran named Leroy who hurls himself down stairs in a group home in an attempt to kill himself, in an attempt to impale himself on um, some posts, basically. Um, he's uh, basically brain damaged and has been brain damaged for the last eight years. He wakes up one night with the moment of awakening of, oh, my God, I, I'm finally aware of all my surroundings, even though I can't talk and I can't really move. But this is it. I, I'm, I've healed my brain. And now, oh, my God, I think this is the only day that's going to be like this. I should just kill myself, which is a great opening oh, idea. You know? Yeah, it's horrifying. Absolutely. It's a horrifying glimpse into someone's you know, mindset. Psyche. Yeah. yeah. So it, it goes from his suicide attempt he he doesn't die um from this attempt it's no spoiler because there's page four in the book um and uh he is found by the person who is the night manager of the group home a gentleman named freddie who calls 911 gets him to the hospital and basically the novel from that point spirals out from the the spokes in leroy's life and freddie's life coming together so in leroy's case it's his mother um, nominally his girlfriend in a very strange portion of the book, which we'll talk about. Um, and then Freddie has a job and a life and children and is at, at the end of the line. He is a real Carver-esque character, actually, um, and is pushed to do something illegal. Um, and then there's a nurse who is one of Leroy's nurses, and then we get her life. So it's a very picaresque novel of all these different people's lives but it also takes a very postmodern turn because as Leroy is in a coma, we get his perceptions of the world, and that unfolds in a very interesting way. Um, he's a huge sci-fi fan, and so his time in his brain basically unfolds as a combination of reality and sort of a dystopian novel, yeah. which yeah. is, I, I think it's a great idea, also hard to pull off, and I'm not sure if it entirely works, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. So that, that's the basic plot. Um, there's not one huge conflict to be solved. There's a lot of little human conflicts that the story is really about, which is, yeah. which is what Ryder was saying was, is the challenge of a book like this. So w- what, what, what did you think, Julia? Well, I thought it was Carver-esque. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Both of you two assholes said that, so. <laughs> Might as well go for the trifecta. Um, yeah, I thought it was, you know, I think we're going to be right in line here. So I liked it, um, but I was put off by um, the fact that, yeah, the conflict here is that this is an issues book with mm-hmm. a capital I. So lots of issues are at hand. So housing crisis, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, so many. I mean, like, so many that even to list them is to give things away because um, all of the conflict is coming from these outward societal um, mm-hmm. issues that are, there's no other, I can't think of another word because that's exactly what it feels like. Is like, oh, this is the part about runaways or whatever. Right. So, and um, each chapter sort of does take on one calamity, you know, one one basic facet of life in America circa 2009 or whenever, whatever year this takes place. Absolutely. 
Um, that being said, though, I mean, I I did like it. I I thought it was a a good read, and that the fact that it did take on so much, I really admired its ambition, and I did think that certain certain elements were pulled off um, a lot better than others. I mean, like I really liked Freddie's story. I liked the reality of his, you know, downward spiral working class situation. And as Ryder mentioned, I can't remember if it was during the fake break or during the recording, like it was great to read about, you know, there was no, you know, there's no wealth in this book. No. You know, it's, it's all people dealing with a day-to-day situation um, that is just essentially hopeless. And, you know, I want to just add while we're on that point, because I, I really like that part of the book. I, I, I find it hard to find good books about poor people. First of all, just I, why mm-hmm. is that? That's so mm-hmm. weird. Maybe because the people that write books are usually upper class liberals. Well, I, I don't think know. you see it. I think you see it more in in short stories categorically written by people who are not poor. You know, I I see a lot of that, and I'm just as guilty of it. You know, of people of writing about oh, this is a down on his luck shoe salesman who is facing losing his house or whatever because they are more directly i think in front of an easy conflict which is i'm about to lose my house i'm about to lose my car you know right. the american economy has fucked me well but see what i find um, interesting though is that most of the stuff that's been in pop culture at least certainly movies um about the crash of 2008 or like about our sort of you know latest um economic crisis has been focusing on the rich people uh, you mm-hmm. know, Margin Call, Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. Uh, I feel like most of the sort of like heavy-handed social commentaries about, or, or most of the movies that came out this year, I feel like they 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 comment on it by focusing on the rich people or the people who got away with it or the mm-hmm. people who are are benefiting from the um, the the way our you know capitalism has sort of turned in the last you know, 20 years or whatever. Or the people who the rich have so far to fall dramatically. So there's that awesome documentary, the queen of Versailles. Um, right. Exactly. That's so, another yeah. example. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But this one, this was, I, I just wanted to say that the, I like the fact that I haven't read that much about poor people lately, like in a novel like this about a contemporary, what it's like to be contemporary America poor. Mm-hmm. Like I don't hear about that that often. And so I liked visiting that world. I felt like it felt accurate to me, mm-hmm. his, his capturing of their sort of circumstance. And like, there's one point where Freddie just pulls out his bill and you're like, Oh my right. Christ. <laughs> I mean, just the thought of facing that bill. And then, I mean, even just when you first meet Freddie, you're kind of thinking he's going to, at least I did because I didn't, you know, read anything about. It. So I was thinking he was just a secondary character that we were really going to be following Leroy's, you know, dealing with the coma or the mm-hmm. attempt is a suicide attempt because that's what it opened with. So I immediately was like, oh, the caretaker guy who happened to be there. Okay, he's just going to be in this one part of the book and then we'll never see him again, which is is kind of the assumption we make about caretakers right. in life in general, right? We make that assumption about nurses and even doctors, but certainly nurses and, uh, you know, home care providers and people that work at, like, you know, behind the counter of a paint store, which is Freddie's other job. We engage with them so quickly, but especially caretakers, and we take for granted that they, you know, want this job or that they chose this life. But the truth is, of course, being a nurse really is rough mm-hmm. and isn't like the greatest job in the world and you have to wake up every day and do the kind of crap that people don't want you know and i know this because i have a lot of close friends actually in the medical field mm-hmm. on all aspects of the medical field but i've nurse and doctor friends and then i have public policy friends who work on the medical side and, and policy and public community outreach and so i just loved that freddie's life and like his day-to-day life and feeling like a book captured uh, him in particular, I didn't feel quite as realistically with Pauline, but Freddie in particular, I just like I was so tired every time I got through one of his days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I, I you totally read about how many you. cups of coffee he has to drink and how little and sleep. how he only has two hours of Ugh. sleep, and yet he never complains. But then there'll just be a scene where he'll walk into some place and somebody will be like, "God, you look like crap. How long have you slept?" And he's like, "I'm fine, I'm fine." But you're like, "No, you're not, dude. I've been with you for the last three pages, and it sucked. Your day is awful, and you're you're tired, and you're worried about your kids and the money and the and I just." I just think it's important that we get into that mindset because a lot of us are fortunate enough to not have to live like right. that. You know, I am very fortunate. I don't live like that. I, have, I don't have any health problems. I don't work at a job where I'm confronted with people 
you know, that are shitting themselves and I have to clean that up. Like, you know, I know lots of people who do that and they're really good people. And I don't, I don't have that experience. So I, I really appreciated, uh, this, the sympathy and the empathy that I got from being in that, on, in that experience, well, you know, in that you life. know what he does, what, 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 what Willie Vlotten does is he's not afraid to actually show the mundane repetition of yes. a working person's life. Yeah. So right. Freddie's chapters basically begin all the same way. He got up, he went to this job, he stopped and got donuts. He had this same conversation with the same person. He goes to work, he goes through the, the mid-morning rush. Um, his shitty boss comes in with his frozen dinner and, you know, listens to religious radio and then goes home while he's, you know, doing all the work. And then he takes a two hour nap and then he goes to the group home. It's the same fucking thing every single day. And I think the thing that we expect in, a, in most narrative fiction um, is that he's going to blow up right. and that he's going to go into his office and there's going to be a big scene. But the fact of the matter is, in most cases, in most people's lives... No one blows up. You just keep doing the same shit every day. Just keep functioning, right? You're just trying to make make it right. And he's just trying to pay his bills. And Willie Vlotten, as you mentioned, Ryder, he lists um, Freddie's bills, starting off with a seventy five thousand dollar debt he has to a hospital for his child's health care. His child was born with uh, a displaced hip, if memory serves me correctly. But by the same token, there's a nurse character, and we get her grocery list at one point in the book. And the grocery list is so mundane and so unhealthful mm-hmm. that you just think, oh, my God, that's that's right. I mean, this is this is what normal human beings, this is their normal existence. And they're, they're always fighting against a tide. I mean, we're all fighting against a tide of something. But they are so intimate with the edge that I think it's, it's actually sort of anxiety-inducing reading about these people. And I think that's where the reality and the Carver-esque quality comes. But, you know, I, I would... Hazard to say that this is probably more closely related to Steinbeck than Carver, like you said earlier, um, where, you know, at some point someone is given a choice to do something wrong and whether or not they take it it ends up being the larger emotional conflict of this story. I was reminded, this is kind of a weird thing to be reminded of, but um, Italian neorealism cinema, (laughs) like, yep. No, have you guys ever seen like the Bicycle Thief? Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Um, Umberto, Umberto D. These are great. These are like mm. some of my favorite movies because they, again, it, it was it was rare for a movie to be focused on poor people, and you know, Italian neorealist cinema is really um, the camera just lingers on people doing normal day to day stuff, mm. and like it, you know, the Bicycle Thief is the most famous, and if anybody hasn't seen that movie, they need to see it right now because it's amazing it just is one day in the life of um a painter who loses his bicycle it's stolen from him so it just follows him and his son as they try and find his bicycle or some way to deal with the situation that he doesn't have his bike to get to work the next day which of course will send them into an economic diet so it's very similar in the focus and and the mundane ritualistic quality of like how do you just keep alive and keep hope alive in a situation Mm -hmm. an economic situation where it doesn't seem like there should be any hope um so let, let, let's talk a little bit about this this choice that Willie Vlott makes that is actually outside of any mm-hmm. influence, I would imagine, which is that the choice to convey Leroy's coma as a dystopian novel within the novel, basically. I, I had some problems with it. I have problems with dreams in books, generally, um, because there's nothing more boring than hearing someone else try to tell you about their dream. And there's nothing more boring than reading someone's fake dream written in a book. Um, so yeah, it's just hard to keep the stakes up, right? I mean, yeah, it, it's just exactly. like, oh, if I know that none of this is real, why do I care about it? And right. I kept having that same problem, but it would always be saved by some emotional moment. There would always be a moment within this, because it's a post-apocalyptic kind of story that he's created about him and his girlfriend living in this world where there's people, the free, that are representing sort of an American police or well, they are American but they're like a police state post-apocalyptic version of America where they're going around killing people who are marked which is kind of like a disease that is creeping up his girlfriend's leg um, and he's marked too I guess because uh, I don't know it's, it's, it's all mar- very kind of marks for being weak is right. what the thing is it's not not suitable for, for battle basically right and, and it, 
And so, you know, all that, the, the plot mechanics of all that stuff is, is really hard to care about because you know mm-hmm. that you're all inside Leroy's head and he's not waking up. Um, but at the same time, there would be really nice little glimpses of uh, emotional moments that, that that would save it for me. So it ultimately did work, I think. Um, but it is one of those things, like, once you kind of know where it's going, you're like, oh, do I really have to read a whole other chapter of that? Um, I mean... I really liked the idea. I mean, I liked it on a Secret Life of Walter Mitty level where it was fun to have this new, you know, alternate reality inside his brain. But basically, I mean, Willie Vlotten put himself in a really tough position of, like, he's obviously a realist writer to a stark degree. And then he has to pull off a dystopian novel in the middle of his realist novel. That is really difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, like, he's... The idea, I think, is, you know, bigger than his, I don't want to say his talents, but, like, his experience as a writer. So, you know, if he really wanted to tell this story through a dystopian novel, you know, he could have just written a dystopian novel mm-hmm. making the same emotional points. So, you know, it was it was a good try. So I was glad it was in there. I was To me, it provided some relief from the... Um, daily grind that the other characters were going through, but yeah, I agree with you guys. Well, it, it could have been more exciting. I, I think the the challenge is that it's also repetition because what he, what Leroy the character experiences in his coma narrative is then backed up by things that his mother says. So we find out the facts about his life through other conversations or other entries into the story. And so it ends up being the same plot points, if different emotional points. So it, mm. it ends up feeling expositional, I think, is is the problem. And I think it would have been better if it had been shorter. There's a lot of it. Um, and every time I entered into it, I was like, number one, if it, if, if it weren't in italics, it would be easier for me to read it. I have a real thing about reading long passages in italics, where I suddenly feel like someone is pushing my face into the book and... Telling me to read um, or to That's glean funny. importance. I love it. I love italics. I love like yeah, I whole sections too. in italics and then going back to normal. I don't know why. I like it. But. You're an old man. I am an old man. But I feel the same way about the italic sections in one of my all-time favorite novels, Empire Falls. And it has an italics 30-page prologue that you know I had to slog through. And then I realized, oh, this is important stuff. But I think, you know... Taking this big chance of saying, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to deal with how this guy's brain might likely work. So the basic premise, for those of you who haven't read the book, is he's having these thoughts. And his mother is sitting there beside him, going to the hospital every day, reading him his favorite absurd sci-fi novels. And I don't know if these were real books that she was reading him. They did not sound like real books. Um, But sounded, you know, sort of like dime store um, sci-fi books where there's Lots of women who kiss and are bathing one another. That was one of the... And then planets with names with lots of Ks in them and that sort of thing. You know what I want to add about that um, real quick is... Did you guys notice that whenever Freddy... That he had this... So Leroy had his sci-fi thing, right? And he mm-hmm. was just talking about Star Trek and, and the books and reading the books with his girlfriend. And his, now his mom is reading them to him on his bedside while he's in the coma. Uh, whenever Freddy turns on a TV, he finds a Western... He friends Bonanza. Yeah, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, <laughs> yeah. but it was all yeah. Westerns. Right. It, there was like a consistent, and it, it's something like that that I think is in some ways kind of cool and like, but then on the other hand, it's a little like obvious. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I felt about this book in general. It's like, oh, okay, so whenever he turns on a TV, he turns on a Western. We get it, mm-hmm. you know. It, um, but I don't, and I don't even know what that means necessarily, but it was very sort of like thud. Right. Like, here's a point I'm trying to make. Um, and, I, you know, I think, for me, Pauline as a character becomes, like, super nurse. Mm-hmm. In that she's, like, the best, healthiest person who has been wounded by life. And, you know, has fought back and come through a pretty, you know, tough childhood and, and, and tough, probably, in her 20s. And now she's, like, the ultimate nurse. And when I realized, like, about halfway through that that was, like, the character was kind of a stand-in for, like, every great nurse, mm-hmm. um, she lost reality for me, and she lost interest for me. She just well, became one of these, like, perfect person characters. Well, you know, the, the book is dedicated to the patron saint of nurses. Yeah. Camillus Delilus. Camillus yeah. Delilus. 
I, I agree. And you know, I think the thing about about the Westerns specifically is we get it. Freddie is an anachronism. You know, he's right. a guy whose word is bond. We mm. got it. And, you know, every time that it's reinforced, I felt like it's just another repetition of something we already know. Right. Um, the the Pauline stuff, though, is interesting because I think having her as a nurse and not a doctor, so she doesn't heal. She just cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I, I think that's the, it's an interesting device. And I know a lot of nurses and um, they are some of the most fucked up people I've ever met also because they also become overwhelmed by the suffering that they see. There's, there's a great moment, though, here in the book where a patient just geysers blood out of their mouth, throws oh, yeah. up blood all over everything. And I, I literally recoiled when I read it. I was like, oh, God. And you just think, man, if you make that choice to be a nurse, you have to be willing to deal with every fluid you've never wanted to see, you know, and, and, and not take it home. She takes it home in this book. But she pays it forward by, by being a hero, and I, it, that was the most unbelievable part of it for me. Yeah. The the depth of her heroism. Yeah, I wanted her to cave a little bit at some point in some way, like really just to just be selfish. Yeah. Yeah, especially right. after reading Five Days at Memorial. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. And and maybe that's that's part of it is having just been in that world where we dealt with these people and it was you know fairly amazing. To see her, see this character. So we should give a little background. So she's a nurse that's taking care of Leroy, but she also becomes uh, involved in the life of a runaway named Joe. And she is sort of the stand-in for the runaway culture in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And all the sort of cliches about the runaway culture in the Pacific Northwest show up, including even the rich runaway whose family lives on a golf course somewhere else. Um, and I, I found that I found that a little heavy-handed. I really did. I, I, I thought it was also probably something that took away from the bigger plot points in the book. Of you know, Leroy's life seems more complex, and Freddie's life seems more complex because their problems are personal, whereas Pauline is dealing primarily with other people's yeah. problems. It was. Uh, I really want to just comment on his his description of people's living situations was really interesting and really good. Mm -hmm. So like, even when, when they go to the farmhouse where these runaways are living, like it's a vivid, awesome space. And I love the details and like, you know, just, I, uh, the pizza boxes and the clogged sink and the, you know, whatever it was that, I mean, I don't, I don't, whatever he wrote, it was just the right touch that I was like, I know this space. I've smelled this room before. And, um, you know, Pauline goes to her dad's and he describes that. And it's just, it's really gross and good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, in a way that, and I don't think he captured the characters of those, especially the runaway world quite as, as well. But, you know, so they're also not really the center of the book. They're kind of at a remove. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the focus of the book. The focus of the book is Pauline. Um, so I can forgive him a little bit for that. But, uh, but yeah, I agree. It, it rang a little false. That world rang a little false. The one thing that I was looking for that um, never really showed up as vividly as I thought, having listened to his songs, was a more sense of humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there, there's a little bit of humor uh, with the a gentleman named Lowell who offers Freddie the opportunity to house some uh, marijuana in his basement. But there was, I mean, I, it's not a funny world, I guess, but I, you know, I, I think sometimes in a book this stark, you want at least one moment of lightness periodically. Yeah. Um, I said this about everything falls apart. You guys gave me so much crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember. Do you remember? Yes. I was like, it's a book about colonialism. I just want like a little, I, and you guys were like, what? How dare you? <laughs> but I agree, man. No, I think you got to have a little bit of balance. Just a little, yeah. I think. Well, especially because I think that that's where he gives himself away as not being truly from this world perhaps is because yeah i mean obviously it's a dark world but there's humor in everyone's life you know and that is how so many people get through all of these endless days and weeks with this depressing Mm -hmm. stuff yeah i think it's it's possible that he intended like the the freddy's crappy boss listening to christian uh talk show and being such a hypocrite is kind of funny 
but it's it, you know I think he may have intended that. But there's a lot of anti-religious sentiment yes. about this book, which yes. I I agree with a lot of what he's saying. But it was so obvious again that like here I really want to drive home that these Christian organizations have got it wrong and they're not mm. helping when they think they're helping. They have the right intention, but you know, and that that point is just kind of made and made again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, there's a lot of that because particularly with the Runaways, there's there's Joe's family are all fundamentalist Christians, if memory serves me correct, or somewhere near that line. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's a, a big part of a lot of people's lives. And it's I think it's hard to deal with in a book like this because you're dealing with characters who are either fervent believers or not fervent believers. And there's very few people in between, um, I think, in any world, basically. There's us and then there's them. <laughs> Um, and particularly in these small towns, although I guess this actually takes place in Seattle, though it never feels like it's in Seattle. No, it doesn't take place in Seattle, does it? I, it's like, I think it actually... Because she, she drives up to Seattle to try and find Joe at one point. Yeah, so she, she's definitely outside of yeah, Seattle. Yeah, so they're, I guess they're in a world. small town outside of Seattle, in the suburbs, perhaps. Because she goes to Pike Place and Pioneer Square looking for her, but it's not Yeah, but they're not, away. no, they're not in oh, Seattle. Right, 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 yeah. Um... What else? What are the big things? What was I thinking about? I think it'd make a great song. <laughs> so, what yeah. what elements of a, of a great song exist in the free? Um, there's a guy coming back from the war. He's damaged, pining for his girl. Um, there's a runaway who's in a bad situation who gets pregnant and has chlamydia. There's a yeah. Nurse. This could be like a great twelve song album with each song for like a chapter, basically, yeah. or or a character. Well, yeah. I mean, it does feel like each of these plots and characters is a melody and that they interact, you know, just about as much as three individual, you know, phrases of music would interact. So I think it is beautiful in that way. You know, like I, we're being, I think, rightfully tough on it, but, um, to hear these three individual strings of music play over each other, it completely makes sense that this is written by Hmm. a musician to me. No, I haven't thought of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Um, well, that's The Free by Willie Vlotten. I think it's a, a pretty good book. Um, it, it, makes it is me... good. I feel like we've kind yeah. of been a little negative on it, but I actually really enjoyed reading yeah. it. So. Well, here's the thing. like, And here's what I'm thinking as we're talking. It's like, yes, I think everything is obvious and issuesy, but, you know, taking our literary critics' hats off for a second, like, you know, maybe some issues are worth being obvious about. Right. Well, Grapes of Wrath is kind of obvious and issuey, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's where a lot of the Steinbeck comparisons come into. So it is definitely worth the read and makes you think and makes you think, oh, my God, I fire myself. I think it it does a a really good job of of showing the small town life. quit the podcast. (laughs) This time it was because of her, not us. Makes you think. I just got an F on my third grade <laughs> essay. Uh, I think for those of you who have not read a book about big problems for small town people, this is a good book to read. Um, a good picture of sort of the drive-by towns in the Pacific Northwest that you see off the freeway and you think, oh, I wonder who lives there and what their life is like. And it's just as sordid and disappointing and fucked up as our lives. So that's nice. Um <sighs> And I think it makes me want to go read his other books, actually. Um, And I think not a great pool book, but definitely a book for being in sort of that meditative phase where you want to think about the um, existential weight of human suffering. Well put. Yeah. Hmm. Which brings us to actually what we're going to read for our next episode, which we should let the readers know or listeners know about. Our next episode, we're going to read The Stranger by Albert Camus. Woo-hoo. However, we are going to be joined by a real-life high school AP English teacher who is going to guide us through the book and also is going to provide a test that Julia Ryder and I have to complete oh, to I see if uh, we can pass high school English. She promises it will be 10 questions or less, multiple choice. Is there going to be an essay section? Because that's really where I... <laughs> yeah, me too. Multiple choice. <laughs> I don't know. Multiple choice. It's you know, we might even see if she can give us a scantron and uh, and run it through the machine so we can have the results. 
But uh, that that Get that's next up in pencils. our that's next up in our existential weight of human suffering book group that we're now in here at Literary Disco. Awesome. Can't wait! But now it's French. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it better if they're French. Oh yeah. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read Albert Camus' The Stranger. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. <laughs>